Okay, can we turn to Romans, please? Romans 1. We're mixing it up. You never know where we're going to go. And we'll take a couple moments to prepare. Not that you're not prepared. I think you all are, but let's take it. I need it. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this opportunity in which we may gather together for the purpose of encouragement. And as Ephesians 5.16 says, that we may redeem the time. We pray that you'll teach us to number our days, to show how that opportunity is limited so that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. And we know that the scriptures grant us wisdom with regard to the salvation that is by Christ Jesus. Thank you for another opportunity to look into the word as into a glass, to behold the image of the Lord and to be changed to another degree of glory to his image. For this privilege, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. One word to start with tonight, and the, I like the way the British say it better. It's exigence, and I think Americanizing it is more like exigency. And I might be teaching a little bit more on this tomorrow night, but I wanted to introduce it because the series that we're involved in now is called Better Call Paul. And every epistle of his communal epistles, and there are 10 communal epistles, we're majoring on those right now. Philemon, in fact, is included as a communal epistle. It was not written just to him, but to a house church. And was mailed or dispatched through a special courier along with the epistle that we now call Laodiceans, which is normally called Ephesians. We won't try to confuse you on that. And the epistle of Paul to the Colossians. Those three letters in a single dispatch were sent out. Now, every one of the communal letters that Paul wrote has an exigence related to it, meaning there is an implied crisis that required a response, some form of crisis, some form of condition, a pressing, urgent condition, we might call it, that called for a response. In other words, in which there was a sense of better call Paul. The most obvious one is one we may deal with tomorrow night is the first epistles that we have that we know were written by Paul were written in little late in 40, BC, or 40 CE, the common era, otherwise known as AD. And it was written, the exigence that brought that forth was, especially Second Thessalonians, was an eschatological anxiety. It's called the left behind syndrome. The Thessalonians were told by one or more means, by either a charismatic utterance or a prophecy or word or a message or a teaching, or maybe even an epistle that claimed or alleged to be from Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. These letters, many of the letters, incidentally, weren't just written by Paul. They were co-authored by others in his missionary enterprise. And they were told through this, either this spirit, pneumatos, which is a, a charismatic speaking out of a prophetic word, or through even an epistle that was named, claimed to be from Paul, that the Lord had come 
and gathered his people, and the day of the Lord had come, and therefore they were left behind. Now, you can imagine communication isn't as rapid as we have it today. They must have been quite anxious. They were very disturbed about it. And the reason, the exigence that produced that was the historical incident in which the Caesar at the time, whose name was Gaius, Gaius Caesar, in late 39, I think that G-A-I-U-S, in late 39 CE, the Common Era, or A.D., he proposed to set up an image in the temple in Jerusalem, an image of himself, a statue. And that would have been a, a terrible abomination. And that providence restrained that. Paul goes on to explain that a little bit in Second Thessalonians. But he writes, and this, this again illustrates exigence or the exigency of that letter. Paul said, I don't want you to be disturbed from your composure by this report. And then he goes on to explain in Second Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2. That was exigence. The exigence for Thessalonians, better call Paul about this, has the day of the Lord come and have we been left behind? That's pretty serious. First Thessalonians, in fact, it was addressed before that. Paul had done quite a bit of eschatology in that mission in Macedonia, in Thessalonica, and the people then became disturbed about the question of what happens to loved ones when the Lord comes in the parousia. And Paul wrote that letter under that exigence. Better call Paul. He responds especially in 1 Thessalonians 4.13-18, to 18, which is a passage that's been rather butchered in our own time as a rapture passage, when in fact it's the parousia of Jesus Christ in which he comes to stay rather than comes to grab some people and take them away. So there is a new need to call Paul in our time. The exigence is pressing. That's why I've taken on this series, because it's rather urgent in my view. Romans is not an exception, because Romans has the exigence of the arrival of, or the anticipated arrival of, a famous Jewish Christian teacher in Rome. And Paul anticipates this because this teacher and his cohorts, his cronies, have already caused a horrible crisis year for Paul, 50 and 51 AD. And it's in 50 to 51 that Paul wrote the majority, a flurry of epistles, and a lot of them had to do with this wave of opposition to Paul's gospel. And it seems like we haven't really totally recovered Paul's gospel as the church in the 21st century. So that's why I decided better call Paul, because we have to see, and my question, again, I don't want to get away from my main aim of the study, even after studying a lot of other things, reading 1,500 pages or whatever, and I have a lot more to teach on and read. I don't want to get away from the question that I asked in the beginning of Paul, calling upon Paul and saying, can the entire body of your epistles, and we'll call it right now the communal epistles, there are 10 epistles to churches or to house churches, that's all 10 that have Paul's name attached, with the exception of the so-called pastorals, which we'll deal with as a separate issue sometime during the course of this. And when, because of this, Paul pretty much understood the whole counterposition. 
and he replied against it in 1 Corinthians. You have someone there telling the Corinthians there's not going to be a general bodily resurrection. Paul has to answer that. And there are questions about sexuality, and there are questions about idolatry. There are questions about practical ethics that he answers in 1 Corinthians. He deals with a very unusual situation, also a secondary exigence, laziness in Thessalonica. People stopped working. And it wasn't just because they expected the soon return of Jesus Christ. They were a a community of artisans, and a lot of them just decided they weren't going to work. And they... So there was a specific laziness issue there that Paul addressed by saying, you guys better get to work, because if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. That was a pretty hard line he took in Second Thessalonians, but it was a second exigence. But in Romans, there was the exigence of the anticipated arrival of this famous teacher who had given, done so much harm to the gospel. Paul wrote in, Timothy, that there was a man named Alexander the silversmith or the coppersmith who has done me much harm. This teacher did Paul much harm, but he did the church much harm. He was a Jewish Christian famous teacher. He believed that there was some kind of ethical capacity in the pagans that should have recognized divine design and creation. And because they didn't, they were punitively wrathfully dealt with by God who gave them over to all of the pagan sins that were berated and brought out in Romans 8, 1, 18 to 32. He believed that the pagans needed to be circumcised. The males needed to be circumcised after believing in Christ or after coming into Christ and that they had to follow up on that with a comprehensive following of the Torah prescriptions. And he also believed that there was some kind of ethical capacity that came with circumcision, which Paul says that nothing could be further from the truth. Paul's ethical capacity, Paul believes that ethical efficacy comes only in Christ, in participation with Christ's faithfulness, and in the elimination of the Adamic ontology, putting off the old man altogether. As I said Sunday, rather facetiously, the... Adamic nature today is preserved in Christianity, but it's reconfigured to look more Christianized. And a reconfigured Adamic ontology is not Christianity. It's a preserving of one's life in a sacramental or ritual or moral or ethical series of patterns, but it's not Christianity. So Romans had its exigence also. Paul announces that he is going to go to Jerusalem He wants to go there for his third visit. He wants to bring a collection that he had been collecting both in Achaia, which is the Achaia rather, which is southern Greece and Macedonia, which is northern Greece. And he was going to bring this collection to Jerusalem. He also intended to go to Rome and on his way to Spain visit the Roman church. Paul was given the commission by Jesus Christ In his commission in 34 of the Common Era, 34 CE, which we have as a pretty absolute date, he received his commission from the Lord Jesus Christ in that year. And we know two years later he was let down in a basket over a wall in Damascus and that he had been already ministering in Damascus, in Syria, and Cilicia also. 
And so we have that date, 36. We know the Gaian incident happened, or the issue of Gaius claiming that he was going to put a statuary of himself and therefore desecrate the temple, at which time this false teacher said that's the demonstration that Jesus Christ is coming and taking away his people. He's already done it. You guys are pretty much left behind. So there was exigence. There was exigence for Galatians. That's almost the most obvious. There was another gospel, which Paul said doesn't deserve the name gospel or good news. It's not good news at all. And there was a defection, a Galatian defection of the churches. They had been removed. They had deserted. They'd gone AWOL from him who called you by the grace of Christ. So the obvious exigence of Galatians is the presence of a false gospel. It's not quite as obvious in Romans. But once you understand that the, the exigence that called forth Paul's response is in this case really Paul's anticipation of this teacher. By now he knows every facet of the counterposition, the counter gospel. And so Romans becomes at least at first, at least in the first eight chapters, it becomes a dialectic of contradictories. And Paul, it's, it is, and I agree with Campbell that it's sort of like a Socratic dialogue in which there's the position and the counterposition and the position and the counterposition. And so as we've already seen, there are great parts of Romans 1 through 4 that really belong to this other teacher's view of things and Paul's response. So that's the exigence for Romans. He's going to Spain through Rome, but he wants to bear some fruit among the Romans because even though he didn't plant this church, as we say, he didn't plant the church at Laodicea to whom he wrote Ephesians that we call it. He didn't plant the church in Colossae, but Jesus Christ gave him the commission over the Gentiles, the pagans, as he calls them, or as the Jewish people called them, the Goyim, the Gentiles. And this was verified and recognized in Jerusalem. Paul wanted everyone to know that there was a positive meeting between him and the apostles in Jerusalem and that they had literally shaken hands on it. And Paul was to go to the uncircumcision, Peter to the circumcision, meaning that Jesus Christ commissioned and the apostles agreed that Paul the apostle had the official authority over the commission to the Gentiles. So when he heard about a pagan church, such as was founded in Laodicea by some other person, he assumed already that he had authority to address that assembly, and he did. The letter to the Ephesians, which is better known as the letter to the Laodiceans, and we've been explaining that mainly from Colossians 4.16, we get the lower blade data on that. The exigence that called forth the letter to the Ephesians, which is not a circular letter. It was only intended to be read to the saints in Colossae and in Laodicea. The exigence was that there was, and Paul found this out when he was imprisoned a little west of there in Asia for about six months. He found out through the truant slave called Onesimus, whose name means useful, who came to Paul and told him the situation, asked Paul to intervene on his behalf with Philemon. And Paul did so in that wonderful letter called Philemon, in which he addresses the house church of Archippus, who was in in Colossae, in the Colossian area. And also he let Paul know that there was a bunch of weird 
practices being practiced among the church, or at least being propounded by false teachers in Colossae. And Paul had to address that. So while he was writing Laodiceans, the exigence of which was the existence of a pagan church, and he wanted to tell them what their identity was. He wanted to say, so really Ephesians, as we used to call it, I'm calling it Laodiceans from now on, and I'll keep showing you why. There, the, we have the purest expression of Paul's proclamation of Christ. And we have the answer really already laid out pretty heavily in Ephesians or Laodiceans. I'll get you used to it. I'm not quite used to it yet. We have the purest rendition of the message of Paul. And I think the answer, should Paul's epistles, the entire corpus of Pauline epistles, be read as an apocalypse, as a presentation of Jesus Christ, especially emphasizing his, the divine side of his identity, although we also see the human side of his identity. That's what Christmas is about. The divine side of his identity and that we see in him a universally saving God and Savior. And in Ephesians, we, have a, it, we really have the purest expression of this. So the, the only exigence that called forth Ephesians was Paul's discovery that there was a church of largely pagan converts. And so he wanted to take advantage of letting them know just exactly what it means as pagans to be participants in the faithfulness of the Jewish Messiah. And there's another fantastic study that's been done very recently by Chris Tilling, that's T-I-L-L-I-N-G, called The Divine Christology of Paul. And this really intrigues me because he believes that in the New Testament there's a correlation to the Old Testament inasmuch as Yahweh was the God of Israel and the divine identity of Jesus Christ is displayed in Paul's epistles inasmuch as Jesus Christ is Yahweh and the church is Israel by this analogy. And this kind of does a converse of what I discovered years ago about the church being the Israel of God and therefore, Jesus being the God of Israel, and that's been, that's been discovered or recovered by Chris Tilling. It's another good study. I recommend it. It's called Paul's Divine Christology. There, believe it or not, there's a lot of theologians fighting against the idea that Jesus is God, and they can't find it in Paul. That's kind of strange to me. But I've asked the question, should the Pauline epistles, let's just say at least the 10 communal epistles or epistles to communities written by Paul, can they all together be taken as an apocalypse like the revelation of John is an apocalypse or an expression of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance? The controversial end of this is not something I want to deal with every time I see you. Is that salvation unconditional? And I will be making the case that it is, that it is based on a covenant in which God says live, not a contract in which God says do this and live. As an old poem says, do this and live, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Another song the gospel brings, it bids me fly, then gives me wings. 
And that's a pretty good rendition of the difference between a contract and a covenant. And so that's what's already been controversial, both within and without our walls. But I'm not going to hit that too hard at first. I'm going to kind of present that part of it, that Jesus Christ is not only apocalyptically depicted in the Pauline epistles as having universal saving significance, but unconditional saving significance. And I've already pretty much got in my mind that, yes, Paul's epistles as a whole can be considered an apocalypse, but we're going to engage the texts and let them prove me wrong. And I'm not going to say let them prove me right. I'm going to say let them prove me wrong. So with that in mind, just that idea of exigence, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, they all have some intrinsic condition that called them forth and so they address something and I think the the exigence of our time is to call upon Paul and say can you give us an idea of what the entire body of your writings has to do with and we're answering it so with that with that in mind and that lined up let's look at Romans 1 as we engage the text I'm giving you my translation of the first six verses. Paul, an imperial slave of Jesus Christ, called apostle, set apart to the gospel of God, which he previously announced through his prophets in the sacred scriptures about his son, who was born of the seed of David. There's Christmas. There's the human side of his identity according to the flesh, and designated as the Son of God with power. There's the divine side of Jesus Christ's identity. By his resurrection from the dead, by the spirit of sanctification, through whom we received grace, Paul speaking there in an epistolary we, epistolary plural or an associative plural, through whom we received grace and apostleship to bring about Notice this, a participation in the faithful obedience, that is, in the faithful obedience of Jesus Christ in all the nations on behalf of his name. Paul's gospel was to bring about a participation in the faithfulness of Messiah. Imagine that, pagan participation in Christ's faithfulness, a coinonial fellowship. Koinonial, K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A-L, koinonial, from the word koinonia. God is faithful. It is through him that you were called into participation, koinonia, with his son, Messiah, Jesus, our Lord. So through whom we received grace and apostleship to bring about a participation in the faithful obedience in all the nations on behalf of his name, including you who also belong to Jesus Christ by calling. God does the calling, you do the belonging, and that's all there is to be said about it. That's kind of an unconditionality. As many as God predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, which we could argue is all humanity, to them God also foreknew and to those he foreknew 
He justified or delivered by grace, as we have seen. And as many as he delivers by grace, he glorifies or has glorified. Now, the latest research, as we've shown, declares the very high probability that Paul wrote first and second Corinthians before he wrote Romans. He wrote Romans in the spring of 52 AD, and it was the last of his epistles to the churches or communal epistles. It was the last one. By that time, he kind of knew all the features and he had mastered all the features of a counter position gospel. And he outlines them in one of the most brilliant dialectic of contradictories in the book of Romans so that he presents his own gospel, most notably in 116 to 17, Romans 321 to 26, anticipating Romans 51 to 839, in which Paul presents what I call the gospel unchained. And the gospel unchained is sent to unchain you from the Adamic ontology, which is the power of sin, and to unchain you to live a law-free ethic by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is a participation in Christ's own fidelity, Christ's own love and faithfulness and perseverance. And that's the Christian life. It isn't a reconstitution of Adam's ontology. It is a participation in Christ. And so, once again, the reason I say this, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians as well as 2 Corinthians before he wrote Romans, and he wrote Romans from the home of another gentleman named Gaius, not the Caesar, but Gaius was a fairly famous name or a fairly common name among the Greeks at the time. He wrote from uh, the home of Gaius where he stayed in Corinth. He wrote Romans. We have lower blade data on this from 1 Corinthians 1.14 and 16.23. That brings up lower blade data to support this. And in John's gospel, we also know that Jesus said, Believe me when I say, the Father is in me and I in him. The Father and the Son have fellowship. The Father has participation in the Son. The Son participates in the Father. And also in John fourteen twenty, you in me, speaking to believers, speaking to Christians, speaking to people, you in me and I in you. John fourteen eleven, John fourteen twenty. Being in Christ is a koinonial participation with him. In First Corinthians one nine, God is faithful. Again. 1 Corinthians 1.9, written before Romans, already established in Paul's gospel. God is faithful. It is through him that you were called, there's that word again, into participation with his son, Messiah Jesus our Lord. Here we get the first hints here in Romans when Paul is called to bring about the participation in this faithfulness of Messiah among the pagan nations. We get the first hints that faith carries the meaning of faithfulness in Paul's epistles and that the faithfulness is God's and Christ's. Our privilege by calling is to participate in that faithfulness. Faith 
that is our faith, is therefore a gifted participation. Let's just present this as a position. This is a position I'm presenting tonight. It is my position, to be fair. Faith, that is our faith, is a gifted participation with the faithfulness of Jesus. It is our gifted participation. It is also the means by which which we perceive the total love of God, the totality of God's love, without which we don't really get the whole picture. So our faith is a gifted participation with the faithfulness of Jesus. It is not, primarily in Paul at least, the instrumental means of appropriating justification as the legal imputation of righteousness by a God of otherwise retributive justice. The justification which is viewed as a legal or a forensic thing in which the righteousness of God or the righteousness of Christ is imputed to your account bears a foundation of a God of retribution and puts forth the primary aspect of God, the primary trait or attribute of God as being justice. Paul's gospel, the primary attribute, in fact, the totality of all divine attributes is love. That's the same with John in 1 John 4, 8, 1 John 4, 16, John 3, 16, and 1 John 4, 9 through 10. And that's the scriptural New Testament thing. That's why it's an apocalypse And the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died. That's the kind of love that God commends and demonstrates in Romans 5.8. So I'm going to say this again. Here's the controversial part, but I'm not going to major on that. Mike, I'm trying to answer the question. Are the epistles of Paul in a body called a corpus or a collection, 10 of them, are they... As one corpus or body, an apocalypse, can they be read as the presentation of Jesus Christ and his universally saving significance as we saw the apocalypse of John do, culminating in Revelation 21 and 22? We've answered that in part in our Revelation study. So once again, faith is a gift of participation with the faithfulness of Jesus, not the instrumental means of appropriating justification, as it's called, as a legal imputation by a God of otherwise retributive justice. The whole justification theory, which I once held, is is assuming a God of retributive, retributive justice, a God bent on retribution. And that is not the God that Paul presents. We are dealing here with a God not of retributive justice, but unlimited benevolence and kindness, clemency, mercy, mercy on all is his intent, according to Romans 11.32. So justification itself, as it's called, and I think it's wrongly translated, dikaiao, is not to be construed or interpreted as a legal imputation in Romans. That's a con- conventional construal. And I agree, again, this where I got some of this, and I'm just proceeding where he left off, Douglas A. Campbell. He has done his homework on this in two books, one called 
the deliverance of God, an apocalyptic reading of justification in Paul, which is really helpful. And then framing Paul, which I just finished yesterday, and that amounts to 936 pages without footnotes plus 411 pages with footnotes. And that, that's kind of like the work that I did, and I'm proceeding from the themes in there that he's discovered. I agree with him. I agree with the findings that he's found. A lot of heavyweight theologians have agreed in the academy of theologians in various places, and many have not. But I believe he's right that the conventional construal or interpretation of justification by faith is based and it's rooted in a contract rather than a covenant. And faith is read as the human condition to be met, to receive righteousness. And so there's a condition. But what if our salvation is unconditional? This this puts you into a place of, well, what about, is there anything from us or is it all about Jesus? It's a little too extreme if it's all about Jesus. I don't know if I want to keep learning. I think I better back off because I thought there was something in here I could do. And even if it's just believe, well, this might put you into a freedom that you never knew you had either. So justification, dikaio itself, is not to be construed as a legal imputation in Romans or anywhere else in Paul. It's interesting that the time that Paul had, the opportunity that he had to just present his pristine account of Christian identity among pagans was Ephesians, better known now as Laodiceans. Better known, meaning more excellently known as Laodiceans. That when he had that opportunity, he never dealt with the so-called justification theme. The only, where, the only place he gets even close is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, where arguably it can be said, you have been saved by grace through faithfulness, not your own. Faithfulness, but that's not of yourself. It's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. By grace have you been saved. He doesn't use justification language. He uses sozo, not dikaio. Not according to works lest anyone should boast. But you are his workmanship. You are his masterpiece. You are a work of God. You are God's, the masterpiece in his gallery of creations, created in Christ Jesus. Four honorable accomplishments which he has ordained for you to walk in. He has ordained a kind of ethic for you that is only through a participation in Christ, not through good works energized by circumcision and in which you get a little help from God to be a better person. That's not it at all. So the opportunity that he has to just address pristine account, to give a pristine account of his gospel, he never gets into this justification idea that he gets into in Romans and Galatians and only part of Romans part of Galatians. So we have today, the theologians have read since the Reformation, they have read Romans as being a justification by faith thesis of theology, which again assumes God to be a God of retributive justice, 118 to 32, 
and a God who requires justice. And if you don't adjust to his justice, his justice is going to adjust to you. And that kind of thing, that kind of motif happens. Whereas justification is tied to the word righteousness, the righteousness of God. Dikaiosune. And dikaio is the verbal form. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel from faithfulness to faithfulness. From the faithfulness of Christ to a shared participation in his faithfulness by pagans and by Jews, too, alike. So there's a great unifying factor here. And that's in accordance with Habakkuk 2.4, the primary prophetic text that Paul uses in Romans and again in Galatians. My righteous one, says God, will live by his faithfulness. His faithfulness is the obedience of Christ to the death of the cross, and that faithfulness continues in people, in the church, in the proleptic humanity called the church, the proleptic community, which will one day be universal. Now, God, if you look around in society and history, not everyone was born at the same time. Have you thought about that? I mean, I was born earlier than most of most of you, probably. I was born in 1951. Most of you weren't born in 1951. You were born some other time. So why do we think that everybody has to be born again at the same time? God has his reasons for allowing, giving life to people for first birth. God has his reasons for giving new life. And it's his will in James 1.18. God has begotten us by his own will. Paul is an apostle by the will of God, not by Paul's, apostle, Paul's will. We are called saints, as we're going to see in seven, not by our will. It's God's will. So here's a question. When was the decision made for your salvation? When, when did you make a decision for salvation? Or... Did God make the decision for your salvation? And did Jesus Christ present the human response that said yes to God and made the decision for salvation? And was that even implied when he said, not my will, but yours be done? Now, if Jesus Christ is the sir, the single inclusive representative of all mankind and went to the cross as that single inclusive representative, and this is, just, I'm, this is just me thinking. This is just presenting something. I'm not, by saying this, saying this is my stance and you better not disagree with it and you're no longer welcome here and all the... You're, you're welcome here if you're a communist. You can hear the word of God. If you're a card-carrying commie, you can be here. You can be here if you're a, a non-Christian. You can be here, whatever you are, you can be here. We're, we're, we're no respecter of persons. But what if, as the single inclusive representative, he went to the cross, and the Bible says that he died for all, which basically is saying he died as all of humankind. And so he rose for our justification. He was delivered over for our sins. He was, he was raised for our justification. That justification, again, for our deliverance, for our gracious deliverance, our rescue. Because dikaiosune of God 
is, as we've seen from Psalm 98, which Paul was alluding to, is God's act, his saving act in Christ to save the people in his domain. And the people in his domain are all in Adam, everyone in Adam. For in Adam all die, but in Christ all shall be made alive. And so, if Christ went to the cross as the single inclusive representative of all mankind and said, not my will, but yours be done, and it was God's will to summarize everything in Christ through the crucifixion of his son, was Jesus Christ therefore making a decision that your salvation would not rest on human will, but divine will? Because if God's will will be done, then everybody will be saved. And God said, I will do my will. And in that pristine account of pagan Christian identity and what it means to be a Christian participating as a pagan in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1.9, the will of God, his determination is to summarize everything in heavens and earth in Christ, to save not only everybody, but everything. Will God's will be done? And do we have fellowship with an entirely successful triune God, or do we have fellowship with a semi-successful Savior? Once I had fellowship with one whom I interpreted to be a semi-successful savior. He comes to save an elect few. Now I believe that the election is all-inclusive in a single inclusive representative. If he died for all and rose for all, then are not all of humankind in him, in his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. Now, not everybody realizes this at once, just like everybody wasn't born at once. God has reasons for saving or bringing people into Christ at certain times in their life instead of just being born that way. That's how he runs history. He controls history. So once again here, that Paul brings about a participation of the faithful obedience among all the pagans on behalf of Christ's name we get the first hint that faith carries the meaning of faithfulness. And our participation in his faithfulness is, implies that the faithfulness of the Son of God continues in that entity called the church. And so our history, our story becomes his story. I was crucified with Christ, said Paul. Nevertheless, I live. Because I was raised with him. And the life that I now live in the flesh, which means I haven't yet been bodily resurrected, I have this body, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Which implies, in fact, it outrightly states there in Galatians 2.20, that the faithfulness of the Son of God that by which he went to the cross in love continues after his resurrection in participation with his people. That's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. There's Christian ethics. That's a Christocentric ethic. That's, an, that's a pneumatological ethic. That's an ethic that's only realized 
in Christ by the Spirit, not having a little help from physical circumcision on the part of the males, and then ethically keeping the law. Someone says you can't keep the law. Well, you can keep the law. Paul was an example of one who did keep the law. If you failed in any part of the law, there were the things called sacrifices, which if you repeatedly and faithfully did, that would take up for your failures in the law. So Paul said, I was, according to the law, I was blameless. He wasn't bragging. He was actually saying that as a fact. But that isn't what the Christian ethic is, and that's what this Jewish teacher was teaching. So I'm going to say, the, the, here's the controversial part. Faith is a gift of participation with the faithfulness of Jesus, which continues in his people. It is not the instrumental means of appropriating justification as a legal imputation by a God of otherwise retributive justice. So justification itself is not to be construed as a legal imputation in Romans or anywhere else. We know that right from Romans 5.18. The disobedience of one brought everyone into condemnation. But the obedience of one, Jesus Christ, brings the justification of life to everyone, to all humankind. And the justification of life means this is a justification that is life out of death. It isn't a legal imputation. It's a deliverance enacted by God on your behalf by which in an apocalyptic event, as far as your life goes, you're shifted from sin into Christ. And he reveals this righteousness to you. When you get to Romans 3.22, people say, well, wait a minute, right there it says, This is the righteousness of God that's imputed to all those who believe. But it doesn't say it's imputed to all those who believe. It says it's revealed or manifested to all those who are believing or sharing in the faithfulness of Christ. It's it's the fact that you know it, that it's revealed to you in Christ. That's why we meet together. We learn of this. And so... In Romans 5.18, Paul speaks of the dikaiosin, or justification, zoes, which comes to all human beings through the righteous act of the one man, Jesus Christ. So the very term justification of life indicates the gift of the resurrection life that delivers from death and from sin, both of which are powers, active powers, and therefore, from Adamic ontology, or existence in Adam. And so what happens is, once you're placed in Christ, sin and death as powers are rendered hors de combat in the life of the one who is led by the Spirit, as Ephesians 5 18 says, or rather Galatians 5.18 says, and who walks by the Spirit. The walk metaphor, whenever Paul uses it, is a, an analogy to the Jewish idea of ethics. To walk in love is to express the ethic of love. That ethic of love is because the love of God is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And so... 
Justification is not a legal imputation of righteousness that makes you all right in the sight of God, even though you're still a slob. It's rather the deliverance of God, of the human race, as an act of God in Christ and by the Spirit. This is what's being revealed in Paul's gospel. He hits it while he's dealing with other issues, such as in 2 Corinthians. When I say issues, I mean problems. It's a better word. People, the word issue is changed now. Issue means problem now. He has issues, which means he has problems. Say he has problems. Issues aren't problems. Issue is something else. It's a, it's a theme or a motif. It's something. And the issue in the gospel, the motif in the gospel, is the unconditional saving grace of Christ. It's not the problem of the gospel. Paul's dealing with other problems. In the midst of that problems, those problems, he says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The saving act of God in Christ was a reconciliation of the world to God. But when did that happen? if not at Calvary's cross. Who knows it? Those with faith. Who are those with faith? Those gifted with a participation in the faithfulness of Christ. And God has control over each person's birth and the time, as well as God has control over each person's second birth and the time of it. You can't make someone be born again by sitting them down and convincing them, arguing with them, and browbeating them. In fact, that's the last thing you should do once you've discovered the universal saving significance of Christ is to try to beat someone down to your belief. That's a good way of scattering them abroad. That's a good way of causing them to enter into a bitter reaction against you. That's not what we're doing here. This is, this is a place where we're taught. We go forth not to browbeat people, but to be ready to give an answer for the confidence that we have if someone asks. And there's a lot of people ready to ask. In other words, somebody might say, I heard he's teaching this now, and they're, really, they're, not, they're not maligning as some are, but they're actually saying, what do you, what's the essence of what Rick's teaching down in New Kensington? What, I heard all this stuff, bad stuff. No, I'm not going to listen to the bad stuff, so... You tell me what he's teaching. You can tell him what I'm teaching. That Jesus Christ is an all-saving Savior. And that our fellowship is a participation with an all-saving Savior, not a part-time Savior, and not a semi-successful Savior. Our fellowship is with the triune God. Our ethic is by the power of God. We are released. We are called not to reconfigure our Adamic ontology into a behaving Adam, We're called to put off the old man altogether and put on the new man, which we're liberated to do. You can tell him that. This is what's being revealed by Paul's gospel. It's an apocalypse. It's an unveiling. It's a revelation. It is the divine Trinitarian act of unconditional grace and unrestricted love. It is a liberative a liberative act or liberative act of a righteous divine king enacted in his human representative. And there's many who withstand it. That's what Psalm 2 is all about. What kind of insanity is this? That the nations 
would stand up against the Lord and his anointed, the divine king and his human divine representative. They want to break their bands asunder. And so Paul's gospel doesn't announce a judicial imputation of legal rightness by a God of retributive justice whose vengeful wrath has been appeased by the death of his innocent son. That's what the gospel used to sound like. People said, well, that makes sense. God's an angry, angry man. He's like an angry man. And he's got it out for you. And the only, but he made a plan to have his innocent son die to appease his wrath. So now God's not wrathful anymore. No, God is a God of love. And he gave his son to deliver you as an act of rescue from sin and from death, which were the consequences of Adam's disobedience, not the consequences of God giving you over to them because you looked up in the stars and saw Taurus instead of Christ. Now, I know this is going to, I can tell just by teaching this, this is going to ha- this is a hard thing to teach. In Paul's epistles, Peter wrote in Second Peter, There are many things hard to be understood. But those who are unskilled and unlearned twist and distort them to their own destruction. And I'm trying to kind of undo some of that. So Paul's gospel is the proclamation of a divine Trinitarian act of unconditional grace and unrestricted love, a liberative act, a transformative act of a righteous divine king enacted in his human representative. It does not announce a judicial imputation of legal rightness by a God of retributive justice. So that means that the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ should not be viewed as the protection of us from a vengeful God. That's a conclusion you'd come to if you thought Paul was voicing or vocalizing Romans 1, 18 to 32 and Romans 2. Those who do good and persist in well-doing will receive life and glory and honor. Those who persist in evil-doing, strangely, evil-doing is that which God gave them over to, which is a reductio ad absurdum, a reducing of the other gospel to absurdity. Those who do these, but keep doing these bad things that he outlined up there, they have no excuse, they keep doing that, They're, they have something to look forward to, to at the final judgment called retribution, anxiety, pressure, agony, tribulation. In the day of the judgment, which Paul says, this judgment, which according to my gospel, is through Jesus Christ where God looks at the human race and sees it represented by Jesus Christ. I can't wait for that judgment. That's going to be the happiest day of my existence, the judgment day. When all the dross of the stuff that I did that was nothing but a reconfigured Adamic ontology is going to burn off, finally. And same with you. So the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ should not be viewed as God protecting, as Jesus protecting us from his father, his vengeful daddy. It's the act of God in Christ whereby the human race was delivered 
from sin, from death, and from Adamic ontology or existence in the irredeemable flesh. Don't assume that your flesh, my flesh, the Adamic ontology is redeemable. So when a certain politician says that there's a whole bunch of American patriots that are deplorable and irredeemable, I would reply by saying there is an irredeemable nature. It's the Adamic ontology. Christianity of this other gospel tries to save Adam's ontology, the flesh, re-educate it and reconstitute it as something that would be acceptable to God. Can't do it. Because all the righteousnesses of the Adamic ontology would be nothing but filthy rags, as Isaiah 64, 6 properly says. So it's revolutionary to say, put off that old man altogether. Put on the new. I see the time is up, so I'm going to finish with the cross here. Good place to begin, good place to end. The realization of this, that God... The act of God in Christ delivered us from sin and death, and the resurrection of Christ delivers us. The realization of this, coupled with the power of the sanctifying, resurrecting spirit in our life, brings ethical efficacy. As Romans 6, 1 to 8, 13 says, Paul says, here's my account of ethical efficacy. Is it? that we should go on sinning after the grace of God has outrun our sinfulness. Where sin abounds, grace all the more abounds, Paul says in Romans 5.21. Grace reigns through righteousness, through God's saving act. So do we say that we go on in sin? May it never be. And from 6.1 to 8.13, Paul brings forth what I call a Christocentric pneumatological ethic, an ethic that's only realized in Christ and by the power of the Spirit, or as I used to say it and still say it, I still take this doctrine into it, a higher integration of human living possible in Christ Jesus and actualized in the Holy Spirit. That's what the ethic is all about. It isn't circumcision, ritual circumcision, and then going through sacramental ritual motions and making Adam be obedient and making Adam be good and moral and nice, and then have testimonies about how nice your new Adamic nature is to your own glory, it is that you have been liberated from the Adamic ontology altogether into a law-free ethic, a transformative Christocentric ethic, where you are gifted with a participation in Christ's faithfulness, in Christ's love, in Christ's self-control by the Holy Spirit. Now, I realize I haven't said it as, I, as clearly as I ought to say it tonight, but I'm going to say it several times until it's clear. And the only one that will give you clarity is the Holy Spirit, which is why Paul prayed, I pray that you would receive a a spirit of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom and revelation, in fact, it says. A wisdom, a spirit of apocalypse in the knowledge of him. In Ephesians 1.17 and 18, that the eyes of your heart 
would be enlightened and that you would know the glory of your inheritance, that you would know the riches of God's grace for you, and that you would know just exactly what is the power that raised Jesus from the dead because it's the same power that allows you to put off Adamic ontology and to live in a Christocentric, spirit-empowered, ethical efficacy. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We know there are many things here that are difficult to understand in the first, second, third, fourth, and probably the eighth and ninth hearing. But we pray that your Holy Spirit now will make eminently clear the things that we are stutteringly trying to communicate. For I ask this in Christ's name.